right. Good morning, everybody. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, I am Pastor Kelly. If I don't know you, um, I hope I get the chance to meet you or know you soon. But I, uh, I pastor our Utah County campus down in that side of the valley that may, may or may not be named by some of you. Um, but it's always a pleasure to come up and, and speak to you guys and to see your faces and be loved on and to be able to, to love on you guys. So it's always an honor to be here. And, um, you know, I'm bringing a topic today that is a little different than we've been t- talking about the last month or so with the Psalms. We're, we're taking a pause on the Psalms for just a moment. And we're going to be addressing a, a topic that is a, a hot topic in a lot of circles. And you might be wrestling with this topic yourself. You might be um, solidified in your position on this topic. I don't know where you sit within the topic of women in ministry or women in church leadership. But uh, I hope that today this will be an opportunity for you not only to, to maybe learn something new, but also to be challenged in how you think about this topic, because I, I fully understand that this topic brings a lot of emotion. I get emotional about this topic myself, for both the good and the bad, probably, and from time to time. And so I want to at least paraphrase this by saying, I don't, I don't know where you're at with this topic. I don't know where you might be struggling with this topic or where you're solidified in this topic. But, you know, I want you to know that it's, it's okay to, to wrestle with it. You know, that's okay. It's okay to, to read a text and go, I, I, don't really not, I don't really know how to apply this. I really don't know what it means. In fact, I think that's a really healthy, good thing to do, is to wrestle with the text. I, I love wrestling with the Bible. How many of you love the Bible? I, I love the Bible. I love studying it. I love exploring it. It is a, a deep pool. No matter how educated you might get or how many years you've been studying it, it is just an unlimited bottom pool where you get to just immerse yourself in all the time. And then there's always things I'm learning. In fact, I tell people quite often, I, I hope that my theology is not the same 30 years from now. You know, I, I hope that I, I am learning and, and, and you know, getting a deeper appreciation, understanding of the scriptures. I hope that there's not a moment where I'm just like, I think I've got it all. I don't think that's possible for when I, I look back and think the 10 years that I've been, you know, teaching and, and really researching and things like that. And I can't tell you how different the way I relate to God has been over the last 10 years. And this topic is one of those because, you know, when I, I started exploring this topic about a decade ago, I, I actually was on the side of prohibiting women from leadership. So I went from that side to the side of then basically championing them in church leadership. And uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I guess uh, some people are like, oh boy. Um, you know, and, and, and it's, been, it's been a journey, right? It wasn't just this like aha moment 10 years ago and I was like, I have figured it out. I've uncoded the Bible, right? That's, that's, not, that's not how it happened, right? It was really this, this gradual thing of, of exploring and, and digging deeper into things. And, and I had the benefit of coming from a classical education. Um, I, you know, I got my undergrad in history where I studied an emphasis within the ancient world. So I had kind of a leg up when I entered into this topic. I was already thinking how the Greeks thought and how the Romans thought. And even if I wasn't a follower of Christ at the time, I, I probably would have still fell on the position I'm on now because of that background. 
Because when I read these texts, my filter and lens is thinking like a Greek. I'm thinking like a Roman when I'm reading these texts, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today, is why and how we should immerse ourselves into the context of the Bible in order to understand the Bible. I think that's the, the, one of the most important things, and one of the, the areas that I see misused the most in biblical interpretation is we think like 21st century Draperites <laughs> when we're reading the Bible. We're, we're, we're using our own personal worldviews and cultures to interpret something that's over 2,000 years old. Think about that. Imagine 2,000 years from now, someone trying to interpret your email. Right? They, they'd probably make some, some accusations and assumptions that may not exactly hit your heart, right? And so it's important that we spend the time understanding that world so that we can understand it the way they understood it. And I think this is, this is hard for people, right? Because it's, it's difficult to spend the time doing that. One of the questions I get when I'm having coffee with somebody in this subject or somebody is struggling with this subject and they want to talk with me about it is, is they really don't want to put the energy into actually thinking the way you have to think to interpret these texts appropriately. They, they just kind of want it spelled out here. This is it. And I get it. And I always kind of chuckle. I, was, um, I, was, I listen to a lot of both sides. Obviously, I do a lot of study in this topic in particular and, and, um, and I was listening to one of the uh, apologists for the, the side of prohibiting women in, in leadership. And, and uh, he, he was just like, I've spent three months immersed in this topic. And I kind of chuckled because I was like, boy, it takes like a decade to really get into this stuff. You know, and I just think like it, we just don't really have this realization that you can't just go into this thing like a project and be like, I'm going to understand it in a week and walk out with this understanding of it. It's just not possible. There's too much to look at. There's too much to evaluate. There's so much wealth of knowledge to, to evaluate. And, and so I'm not going to pretend I'm going to give you 10 years of research right now. All right. I, I wish I could. You know, I'm sure you guys have barbecues and things to go to. But what I am going to give is, is kind of explain why context matters. And I am going to filter that through one of the, the passages that is used most often in my conversing with people um, that tends to try to prohibit women from places of church leadership. So buckle your seatbelts, right? You guys ready? Well, let me, start with, uh, let me start with just an introduction here. If I told you that I threw my wedding ring off in front of my wife, what would you think? Rude. What a jerk, right? I threw my wedding ring off in front of my wife. And, and yeah, you're going to think you're going to put some assumptions to that, right? You're going to make some assumptions. This guy's a jerk, rude, all those things. But what if I told you the context of that statement was I was playing tetherball with my wife, and I threw that ball around the pole, and I threw it so hard my ring flew off, literally in front of my wife, and I didn't know it fell off until I heard it hit a ping like a shed about 10 yards away. And realize this is before I had the silicon one. I had a metal one back then. It changes your perception, right? You're not going rude, what a jerk, right? You're going, oh, sorry, I, I came to that assumption too quickly, right? Because I quite literally did throw my wedding ring off in front of my wife. I was playing her in tetherball, and I won, by the way. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, it's, it's, 
this shows why it's important to have context, right? Because if, if I just told you I threw my wedding ring off in front of my wife, you're going to have an assumption. You've already put meaning into that phrase without understanding what's going on in the context around it. And this is something that we do with the Bible quite often. I can't tell you how many times I hear the Bible misquoted or misinterpreted because no one is looking at the context around it, right? The things like the grammatical context, right? Words matter, right? Words really do matter. You know, the textual context. I've, I've so often, the Bible actually interprets itself pretty well, right? That you, if you know where to look within the Bible, you can see how the Bible interprets itself fairly well. And then there's things like historical context, right? Like what's going on in the people's lives during this time? What is the culture like? Why would they be saying these things? I mean, we have to remember that we are not the original audience of these texts, right? We are not 2,000-year-old Ephesians sitting in house churches, right? That, that we have to understand it in a way that they're going to appreciate. Like, how did they understand it? Let's, let's start with them. And then we can talk about how we can apply it. So often we interpret it through our lens and then we misapply it because we're, we're not even giving them the honor of being able to appreciate it the way that they originally were, were written. And I think this, this grieves the Lord in a lot of ways. Right? I mean, think about when someone takes context or takes a context in, in your life and they take it out of the, they, they take you out of context in your life. It, it not, doesn't feel good, does it? When someone uses your words counter to maybe how you were expecting them to be used. And I think that grieves the Lord when we do that with his word. When we say, boy, I love this book, but I really, I'm going to choose when to use context and when not to. You see the problem with that. So context matters. Words matter. And we're going to look at why that is today. And one of the things I want to explain in particular, because we're going to be talking about one of these today, is an idiom. You guys ever heard of an idiom? Not idiot, but idiom. Okay? Idiom. Now, this is, this is a, a figure of speech, right? Kind of like, 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 like a metaphor. But it's really a phrase that has meaning outside of the word usage, right? An idiom is a, it has meaning outside of the word usage. And, and you use idioms every single day. I guarantee that you do. You probably don't even think about how you use them. But one of my favorite, um, I, was, I, I minored in German in college, and, and we used to, to watch YouTube videos of these Germans to kind of understand their, their, you know, their culture, basically. How do we immerse ourselves in the German culture to understand their language and things like that? And, and there was a, a great video of a German on trying to interpret American or English idioms. And maybe you, some of you have seen this video. But he's, a, he's living in the States, and this guy is like right off the boat from Germany, right? Like it's accents thick. And he's sitting in, the, he's talking about a story where he's in an office, and they're talking about going to a party. And uh, the coworkers are, are talking about this Jennifer down the, the aisle a little bit, and they go, oh, we, we can't invite Jennifer. She is such a party pooper. And that poor German guy trying to wrap his head around, wait, Jennifer's a party pooper? You mean she poops at parties? And people know this? 
right? Like he, he's trying to understand, why would you say that about Jennifer? And why does she do that, right? It's hilarious. And we, would, we, would cur- we, and we were crying. He, he has a few of those that he does. But that was my favorite one because it shows you how important it is to understand idioms, right? This, this poor Jennifer probably in his mind was really kind of fouled and because he didn't understand this idiom. And even in, in German, my, my favorite idiom, to give the Germans a little bit of, of honor here, my favorite uh, German idiom is da linkte Humpegraben. Da linkte Humpegraben. Anybody, anybody out there? No? It means um, that's where the dog is buried. So if you're talking to a German and they say that's where the dog is buried, what, what do you think that means? Yeah, it's hard to understand. It means in English that's the heart of the matter. So if the German is talking about the heart of the matter, like the central importance of a topic, they're going to say that's where the dog is buried. Okay? And, and again, we kind of miss that, don't we? An English, re- an English reader is going to read that and go, why, why is he talking about a dog being buried in the middle of this sentence, right? Because we totally miss it. We haven't immersed ourselves into that grammatical culture, the language to understand. This is an idiom. That they're making a, a, a meaning using different words. And we see the Bible do that quite often, especially in figurative language. Like, I, I love the, the Hebrew term for being angry. Some of you might know this one. The Hebrew term for being angry is your nose burns. And so if you're long-suffering, it means you have like a long nose that burns longer. Aren't you glad that we don't, we don't translate the Hebrew that way? Like, you'd be reading about anger, and you're like, why is this guy's nose burning? I don't really understand why. So we, use, we understand that as a metaphor and, and as a bit of an idiom, as figurative language, and so we translate it the way it's supposed to be translated, right? So we see this throughout the Bible, and in fact, we're actually going to look at one today of why, we're going to look at a, a Greek idiom and a Greco-Roman idiom today, but the importance of this is that we understand these types of things, right? We need to understand grammatical contexts like idioms. We need to understand cultural, historical contexts. We need to understand textual context. How does it fit within the rest of the passages and outside of, of that passage and in the rest of the counsel of God? And that's where it's important to understand the character of God. Because again, like this topic can be very divisive. This topic can be used as a weapon. I'm sure some of you have even been hurt by this topic, by people who have used it as a knife. And so we must understand the character of God as well. And that helps us within the textual context. What does God care about? What is, what is Jesus like when we understand like, things like this topic? And I want to hit on too briefly before we dive into the, the actual scripture, the dangers of proof texting. I've hit on this before in other sermons. In fact, if you're interested in learning more, we have, I did this sermon about two years ago called the Letter Learn series, a uh, two-week series like we're going to do um, next week as well. I'm talking about this topic. Um, but it was on 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, another very hotly debated topic. But go and check that out if you, if you want to. But it should help you. I also talk about proof texting there. But it, really, a proof text is when you use a passage out of context to prove a point. And I can do this with a lot of verses, right? I could take any passage in the Bible and try to make a doctrinal statement around this topic and and really use it to condemn people if I wanted to. And people do in a lot of ways. I don't think always maliciously, but I think they read it and they go, 
That's what the Bible says. You ever had that before? That's just what the Bible says. It's the plain and simple reading. And I'm always like, where's the context? Right? Like, who does that in normal English? Where they would take something that you said and just use one little phrase of it and go, that's what you said. Right? And we'd be like, ouch, like, don't do that. Right? So don't do it with the Bible, okay? But let's talk about the dangers of proof texting. My favorite one, my favorite proof text, one that I've never seen applied personally in a church, but is a command from Paul himself, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. I have never seen this applied in my life. Okay? Thank God. All right? Now, instinctively, we know this. We, you're already instinctively thinking about the context here. Well, you know, in that time, people may have kissed each other when they greeted. But in today's world, we just shake hands or give a hug. Unless you're Chase, he might kiss you. But we already know instinctively, like, context is important, right? We, we want it. We, we're like, oh, please, be, please let context be important in this passage, because I don't want that to be a prerequisite for me going to church today, is that I have to get, greet people with a holy kiss, right? But grammatically, this is an imperative, right? This is, this is, this is Paul saying, this is a command, Yet we go know like, okay, well, this is a contextual thing, so I'm not going to do it. All right? So why? Why do that to this text, but not all the texts? You see the inconsistency here. Because context helps us to stay consistent. It helps us stay rooted and grounded in how we interpret the Bible. Okay? So greet one another with a holy kiss is a proof text that someone could use to say, hey, we got to start kissing each other. We meet each other, okay? It's a, it's a command. It's in the Bible. It says that we got to do it, right? And, and you might even justify, hey, you know, things aren't going very well because we're really not applying this text the way it should be, okay? What about grammatical context again? In, in the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 5.30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. I had a, a, my dad was a pastor for 50 years, and my brother's a pastor, and so you can imagine what our conversations are like at the dinner table sometimes. And I, I asked him, I said, Dad, what would you do, or how what would you say to someone if they said you had to take the Bible literally in every single way? And he'd be like, we'll be walking around without hands and eyeballs. And I was like, that's a great answer, right? Because if you know this text, you understand that Jesus loved to use hyperbole. Right? He loved to make these, these excessive statements, these big statements to prove a point of how, like in this case, how important it is to take sin seriously. How, how, to, how to take it serious in your life to remove the temptations for sin in your life. Right? But no one applies this just plain and simply. Right? No, we're looking at the grammatical context going, oh no, he's using hyperbole. We don't have to start cutting people's hands off. Okay? Again, grammatical context is important. We almost instinctively know this when we translate. To, to some of you, this might seem just really silly. Like, ah, oh, this is ridiculous, right? But this is exactly what we do. You have to stay consistent across interpretation. And then this is one I use all the time in a, in a hotly debated passage like 1 Timothy 2. It says, uh, and this is 1 Timothy 2.9. It says, in like manner also... The women also adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, some of your translations might say um, 
elaborate hairstyles with braided hair. And this worked out really well last night in Utah County because I had a girl in the, in the audience who had braided hair. And so it's one of those things like, do you use historical context to interpret this passage in verse 9? Do you say, well, braided hair had different meaning than it does now, or should we prohibit braided hair in church? Because Paul says, not with braided hair. That's the literal meaning of it. But see, here's the problem is, well, we'll people who prohibit women from leaders is what they use. They use 1 Timothy 2.9, and they'll go, well, context is important here. We need, to, we need to filter this through the historical context to understand that this is meaning something, not necessarily like prohibiting braided hair. Well, two verses down, it says that, that women must learn in silence and full submission. That I do not permit a woman to teach or to, have a, to dominate a man, but to, to be silent. You know, and so how can you use the word of God in that way? How can you say context is important in verse 9, but not important? In verses 11 through 12. I don't, how do you, how do you say that's consistent in your interpretation? And that's where I, I start to, to kind of start poking at the holes of those who prohibit women in leadership because they don't really consistently look at the context of a passage. They really are, when you don't do that, you put yourself in an authoritative place. And you get to dictate when to use it and when not to. And that is exceptionally dangerous, right? That is exceptionally dangerous, okay? And so that's where I'm like, this is why this is so important. Because you are handling the very words of God himself and the inspiration of him, and and you're trying to use it in a way that defends how you feel about a particular topic. Like, I have no interest in winning an argument here. Zero interest, and we didn't argue. I, all I want to do is just give this to you guys the best way I know how. And the best way that will honor the Lord to my ability. Okay? That's all I care about. This is why I'm here. So that's why the dangers of proof texts. So with that all in mind, let's look at our text today. Because I want to show why verses like 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 5.6, that they don't prohibit women as leaders within the church. These are the, the main texts that tend to be used for qualifications of leadership. So elders, uh, senior pastors, um, any kind of leadership role within the church. This is where the, Paul is laying out the qualifications for this. So this is obviously where a contested battleground tends to be. All right. But let me, let's read this first in the NIV. Okay? I, I grew up on the NIV. Let's read the NIV's um, usage of this because there's things I want to point out. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through, I think I'm just going to go through 6 here. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, decide, an overseer is like a, a senior pastor or a leader, um, even like a pastor of pastors is a lot of way to apply that, but an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a matter worthy of respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Okay, let me, let me stop there. 
Now, if you were to read that passage like I just did, your conclusion would most likely be he's talking about a man, right? Because of the usage of he, his, him, the father, the faith, the, the husband of one wife, right? The, the, the conclusion from reading that is that it would most likely be a man. But what if I told you that there are no male pronouns in the original language of that passage? That there are no he, his, and hims. Now, we can't speak that way in English. We have to put something in there to make it sound right. So let's look at another English version. This is the Common English Bible. This is, I'm just going to read the first couple verses to you for this one, but this is how they translate it. This saying is reliable. If anyone has a goal to be a supervisor in the church, they want a good thing. So the church, a supervisor, must be without fault. They should be faithful to their spouse, sober, modest, and honest. They should show hospitality and be skilled at teaching. So we have two English translations here. One of them kind of gives off this, this is a man. The other one gives off is like, well, I don't see the same masculinity in the CEB translation, right? Because the CEB translation, the common English Bible translation, realizes that there are no masculine pronouns in this passage. The only pronoun is the word tis. It's like a T-I-S in Greek, and it's, it's neuter. It means anyone whosoever doesn't, Men or female, it, it doesn't have any connection to the actual gender within this passage at all. So I can't tell how many times I'll be talking to somebody and say, look, Kelly, it says he, him, his. What are we supposed to do about that? Well, I'm like, Paul didn't use those words. I'm going to go with what Paul said. I'm going to go with what his original language said, rather than what maybe some English interpreters are going with. And they can't even decide on that within themselves, Right. When in doubt, go to the original audience, right? I, I think it's so important that even no matter where you're at in your walk, like learn a little bit of Greek. You don't have to be a, a scholar, but understand it well enough that you can defend yourself a little bit in this, where you can kind of look at and honor the text the way it's supposed to be written in the original language and go, wait a minute, there, it, it doesn't have any male pronouns in this. Because it's so important to interpretation. You can see how when we, we use those types of male pronouns in this passage, you're already making this assumption, right? Just like I said, I threw my wedding ring off in front of my wife. You made the assumption already, but it's not there. It's not in the grammatical context. You can verify that. Go to the, look at the Greek. It's not there, all right? So that leads us then to the most contested area in this passage, where the NIV calls it the husband of one wife, or the CEB says that the, they should be faithful to their spouse. And, and this is the same usage in, in Titus 1, which are all about, you know, what does it look like to, to be a leader within the church of God? And this is why I wanted to touch on idioms. Okay? This is why I wanted to touch on idioms to preface all of this. Because what we're reading about and what we're reading with that passage is, is a literal translation in English is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. So if I said that to you, you'd already think, this is, they're talking about a male. Duh, right? It says man, right? But when you understand it in an idiom, we have to think, okay, well, what is he really trying to communicate to us here? And the NIV and the CEB do a pretty good job of communicating this is the idea of faithfulness. It's the idea of being faithful, the fidelity, the loyalty that one shows 
their companion. And when we try to micromanage an idiom, we come up with problems, right? Like if, I, if you tried to macromanage the German idiom that um, a dog is buried there, you're trying to figure out, so why would the dog be there? Why, where is he buried? Why did they bury the dog, right? It doesn't, you're in the German center going, no, dude, it's just a saying, right? So what we've done with the, the, this type of saying, the, 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 uh, the man of one woman, is we've then had to answer questions like, well, should leaders have to be married? Does that disqualify all single people from being married? Does that disqualify all single people from being leaders? Well, Paul was single, so that's awkward, right? <laughs> Jesus obviously was single, so Jesus didn't qualify to be a leader in his own church. Kind of an interesting problem there. You know, it talks about being able to manage your, your family. Do, do you have to have a family in order to, to be a leader in the church? Right? You see how we, we take these things and we try to, to make them more than what the communicator is probably trying to actually say here. He's using an idiom. And that's why that plain and simple reading approach just doesn't work in these types of passages at all, because you're going to try to make assumptions. You're going to try to put meaning to, you're going to try to kind of, you kind of put authority into the mind of the interpreter and it goes, this is what it means. And that's again, super dangerous. Cause how do you do that consistently across all of the Bible? You can't, you have to choose when to use it and when not to, when it best suits you. Again, very dangerous. So what does it mean? What does a one-woman man mean? Well, the, let's look at the grammatical context of this. Like we said before, this is an idiom. This is a, a word that has meaning outside of the words that are being used here. And so we got to first think about historical context. So our grammar reflects our culture. The way we speak reflects the culture around us. Okay, so the way that our culture speaks the way that our writing will portray that culture, right? So we can read, you know, the ancient world. We can eat the, the great writings of Cicero and Caesar and, and Herodotus and Thucydides and these Greek and Roman writers. Their culture bleeds through that, right? And in the Greco-Roman history, Greco-Roman culture, it was obviously a heavily patriarchal society, a heavily patriarchal. You know, we had, you know, examples of women who really were more property, than people. They were maybe a level higher than slaves. In fact, they usually were able to, to manage the slaves, was usually the role of the women. The men didn't even want to bother managing the household slaves. It was usually up for the women, which is kind of interesting because you think the first century church, most churches were women and slaves, right? So a lot of them were obviously talking a lot, okay? But it was also a place where the men had full control, Right? There, was this, there was a Roman law called the pater potestas, this, this idea of the father's power. And this was, this was the same Roman law. It would be like the same thing on the interstate going 75 miles per hour. Like You're never going to hear me get up here and go, you guys should go 100 on the interstate. Right? Like Break that law, it's fine. Okay? Paul has no interest in reforming Roman law. Okay? What he's trying to do is like, how can I keep the peace? How can I... How can I make sure that the gospel is spreading without completely bringing everybody into this? They're all going to jail because they keep breaking the law, right? And then there's some give and take there, right? Anytime you're on a mission, 
you're missional in any way, you're looking at the culture around and going, how can I speak into it? But also, how can I make sure that I'm not radically destroying the culture at the same time? Right? And so we have a heavily patriarchal society. We have male dominance, very much so within the body. Educationally wise, women were, were very limited access to education. You know, we have some numbers that are about 16, 20% of men were literate at the first century AD when the Bible, the New Testament was written. Women don't even have a number for it. It's so little. Right? And, and what we see in Pauline society is that a lot of times what Paul would do is he would start to educate people. Right? So you couldn't learn to write, or, or you, you didn't know how to you know, read or write. He, they would teach you in these Christian assemblies. Right? That's why you see these, this emphasis on women learning so much. Why is it the women always have to learn and not the men? Right? It's because women never had access to education. The, 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 the Christian church had brought in the access to education. That these women were starting to learn to read and write, to understand the scriptures themselves. And, and we do have examples of women who were absolute powerhouses when it came to the understanding of the word. In fact, um, a lot of scholars will say that Priscilla wrote the book of Hebrews. You can believe that. Imagine the theological chops on that woman, <laughs> right? To write under the book of Hebrews. So obviously that kind of a, a context, the historical cultural context of a, of a dominant male patriarchal society like that is going to bleed into the grammar, is going to bleed into the writings, right? And to give you more understanding of the background of, of Greco-Roman society, let me give you a couple of quotes here. So Aristotle, this will be a, you guys will really love this one. Aristotle said, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. One rules and the other is ruled. Pretty sure I've heard that from pulpits. Um, yeah, this is this was a foundational statement for the Greco-Roman world, right? Look at this is the way that the world around them is thinking. You have meander. This is a, a saying that would have been used um, by male students. So, uh, you know, if they were being educated, they would have wrote this statement out probably hundreds of times. Okay, meander said, "A man who teaches a woman to write should know that he is providing poison to an asp." An asp is a snake. Okay. And so you can kind of see and get a glimpse into, just using these two uh, quotes themselves, how to kind of get a glance into what Paul is dealing with culturally here. And the grammar and things of the way that the words are being used that aren't, aren't even any fault to Paul at all in any way. Because a culture bleeds into the writing of its people. That's very apparent. We do the same thing. I'll be sitting on a, a Zoom call, and I, I work with all ladies, funny enough, right? I have lady bosses, and I have ladies who, who report into me. And I'll be on the Zoom call with her, and I'll say, all right, thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Bye. Right? And it's just like, it's just the way you say it. Thanks, guys. What does guy mean? Guy means like a male usually, right? And it's just like the way that, that we speak now bleeds into how we communicate. Right? Like, I don't even think about it anymore. Now I kind of do because I thought about it during this sermon. So I might be like, sorry, girls. Sorry, ladies. You know, it's, and so we, we have to, our, the way we communicate bleeds into how we speak and write. And, and in the Greek word, in the Greek language, there is no word for spouse. Okay, so there's no way for Paul to say spouse. That word doesn't exist in the Greek. It's you're either your man or your woman, right? And so context kind of helps us understand wife, husband. You'll see that word back and forth. 
But there is no word for spouse. So we can't blame Paul for saying, why don't you just use the word spouse, right? We can't blame him for that because it doesn't exist. Okay, so they use what's called an androcentric writing style. Andro is is Greek word for for male, and centric obviously meaning central. So they use a, a male centric writing style, and it tends to be on the masculine side. And so what you'll read in Greek is when they're addressing men or groups of people, the masculine form is most often used. So if they're talking to a particular man or a group of people like I'm talking with you today, I would use the masculine form of grammar to, to speak with you. All right? Now he uses the feminine when only directing it to women. So if I was only speaking to women, you're going to see a more feminine usage of the grammar. Okay? And, and Jesus does this himself in Matthew 5 when he stresses the crowd with the, the Beatitudes. Right? Look at verses 27 through 28. He says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, Jesus, why don't you say every man or woman who looks at a woman or man? That's, that's really clumsy grammar. And it's a really clumsy way to speak in the original language. So the reason that Matthew is using this grammatically is to show that he's, he's speaking to a group of people. Obviously, Jesus isn't saying that only men lust after women but that it goes both ways, right? He's making a principal statement, right? But grammatically, again, if you wanted to, to kind of proof text this and say, well, look, it clearly says man, and it clearly says woman. So women, you're off the hook. Go lust after men, I guess. <laughs> of course not, right? Of course we're not saying that. But the grammatical, the grammatical nature of the worldview that we're looking at is an androcentric worldview. So Matthew is using that because Jesus is addressing a group of people. Okay, so we have to understand that this idea of one woman man is not limiting to just men. It's not, a, it's not an exclusive statement or a, uh, um, or a statement that precludes women from understanding this. In fact, we, we even have letters and gravestones of ancient people where they call themselves one woman men. It's like a place of honor. And this would be even after their spouse had died. Right? So their spouse had passed away, and they were like, I'm still a one-woman man. Even though my spouse has died, I still stay celibate. And it was like this place of honor. And it was a place that was, to the culture around it, was like, wow, that is one self-controlled person. Right? And I'm not saying that's how we have to apply it today, but that is how the worldview around them is applying it and thinking about it. Okay, so we're seeing woman man is, is really not an exclusive statement, especially considering that we don't have any male masculine pronouns within the actual passage. The only one is whomsoever, which has a connotation of, of plurality, doesn't it? Anyone, any one of you who desires to be an overseer, this is what it looks like. Okay, not any man out there who wants to be an overseer. It's any person out there who desires to be an overseer, they go after a noble task. This is what Paul is actually saying. And the real nail in the coffin is the textual context, in my opinion. Because how does the interaction fit? How does this interaction fit in the rest of Scripture? Well, the, the good news of 1 Timothy 3 is that it answers that question in the same passage. Okay? Look what he says, in the same way. So everything that applies above also applies to this. In the same way. 
deacons. This is the word diakonos, so where we get the word like minister. It's literally the word servant. You see contextual, you can see how that's being used. But this is in the way of a, of a role and position in the church, right? Just like an overseer. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing honest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Okay, and then you have, again, the NIV in the same way, or no, sorry, this is a continuation, but this is the NIV's version. In the same way women, this is referring to deacons. I mean, everyone who understands this contextually, scholars, everybody says that this is referring to women who serve as deacons. It'd be really clumsy just to put like, this random phrase of women in all of this, like, oh, by the way, women. Like, that doesn't make sense grammatically. In the same way, women deacons are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And then we see in verse 12, a deacon, this is referring to both men and women here, considering the context of these two passages together, a deacon must be faithful to his wife. There it is again, the one woman man idiom, and must manage his children and his household well. You know, I think it's funny that in Ephesians, Paul makes a reference to the rich young widows. The rich young widows in Ephesus were causing a lot of problems, okay? They were going house to house and spreading what's called it wasn't, it's translated sometimes gossip, but it's really this idea of nonsense, like it's blah, blah, blah. You know, that's how Paul thinks about false teaching, right? When he talks about false teaching, he's like, it's just blah, 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 right? We should probably take hold of that somewhat. Um, but he says, you, you know, these rich young widows should really be getting, remarry, right? Remarry. And he calls them despots. I always thought that was really interesting. Like they should rule over their household, right? And so you think about it, he's, he's calling these women to also fit into this kind of thing, is, is managing and, and, and governing their household well. So that's in the context as well. First Timothy, Ephesus, the same city, same stuff going on here. So those who have served well, again, an excellent standing and great assurance and their faith in Christ Jesus. And so here we have an exact example of, of deacon, diaconon, being used in the context of women. So for this to make sense, you can't exclude women from the role of being a diaconon, a deacon, a servant, a minister within the church of God. In the same way, we have a lot of commentary around this. And so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll look at, you know, how did the church think about this stuff? How were they understanding this stuff? And there's a couple of, of voices. One I'm going to share with you in particular, but one is a guy named John Christostom. He was a um, you know, about 400 years after the text, so a little bit later. But he was a Greek reader, reader and writer. And he says this in, 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 in kind of for, for those, if we're around this one woman man concept, he says, the phrase one woman man must be understood, therefore, to relate to deaconesses. Okay, the, the word deaconess didn't come till much later in history. You were just a, a deaconon, you were a diaconon. Okay, that's, that was, the deaconess came much later in history. For the order is necessary we need women servants and ministers within the church. He says it's, it's necessary and useful and even honorable to the church. Okay? He's, he's looking at woman and man and going, this is an idiom for faithfulness, fidelity, and loyalty amongst a marital situation. And he says they're absolutely necessary. We need them. Okay? This reinforces the idea that one woman man isn't an exclusive statement prohibiting women, but is really describing that moral quality of marital fidelity with even an implication of sexual restraint. Right? They have this self-control. Right? They have this loyalty component that is so crucial to those who lead within the church. 
And then Paul himself puts the nail in the coffin, I think, to, to most of this. So if he, is, if he is excluding women from the office of deacon, why does he write in Romans 16:1? I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a diaconon, a, a deacon of the church in Concrea. Okay, all scholars, maybe there's a few out there, there always is, but most scholars will agree that he's actually speaking about this person of deacon, this role of deacon within the church. And, and Phoebe was one that he obviously had a lot of trust in. Right? He entrusted the Roman letter to the Romans. Okay? And there's a lot of debate on what that could mean. But you know, I think it's interesting that, that Phoebe was the one who brought the letter. So logically speaking, Phoebe would be the one who would answer any questions regarding the letter. I'm not saying she stood up and was like, read the letter necessarily. I think she could have taught it. But you think about Phoebe, the theological mind that she must have had. I have a million questions on Romans. Like I'm writing them down. hope I can take it to heaven with me, right? And just be like, hey, I got I wrote these down, you know? Um, but she would have been the one logically that they would have went to and said, hey, like, you know, Romans 9, what's going on here, Right? And she would have been the one to be able to hopefully understand that. Paul, Paul is entrusting that to her. And I think that's, that's, you know, that makes sense. Logically, it makes sense that out of all the people he knew, and you read about Romans 16, many people are commended. A lot of women are commended in, in Romans 16. He chooses Phoebe from Cancrea to take that letter, a letter of, of deep importance to him because he didn't know the Roman church. The Roman church didn't know him. That's why he's writing this, to show them who he is. He's trying to get support to go to Spain. He's like, I want to go on mission. Support me, Roman church, right? This is what I believe. So it's a really important letter. And so he obviously had a lot of trust in Phoebe. But Phoebe is called a diaconon, a deacon of the church in Concrea. And so if he is writing First Timothy and saying, you know, this is deacons are really only supposed to be be men. Why is he then giving Phoebe, someone of great trust and loyalty, the same role and position in a different church? Textual context is important. The Bible tends to interpret itself if we take the time to study it that way. And again, in in the conversation of women in leadership, this is really the lowest hanging fruit, which is why I kind of chuckle when people use this one the most to prohibit women and leaders, because even, even the side that does prohibit women and actively goes against women and leaders, they even admit that this is not a good text to use. Uh, one of the New Testament scholars, his, his name is Thomas Schreiner. He says this, he says, the requirements for elders, another word for that word overseer, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 6, 9, referring to one woman man, including the statement, he says, that they are to be one woman men, does not in and of itself preclude women from serving as elders. So I, I always kind of stop and go, your own scholars don't even agree with you. Like, this is why that you should really study this topic, because you really have to understand the position that you're sitting in, right? And so it really is a, a position that we, you, you, know, you shouldn't use it, for one, I think it's misrepresentative of the text to use this text to prevent women from leaders. But even the, the side of the uh, of the side who does hold them down won't do it. Did you guys get something from that? The importance of, of textual context, the importance of grammatical context, the importance of historical context, it's it's all there. You know, when you think about the qualifications for a leader. You know, when we actually get to the heart of what this text is talking about, you know, the overseers and the deacons, the, the ones who minister, the ones who serve, the ones who lead, 
all our leadership type positions, it has nothing to do with gender. Like, I, I don't understand why gender becomes the, fixate, the fixation for leadership. Like, I don't understand it. Like, why? Like, why, when, when Paul is writing this letter, do you think he's thinking about that? Do you think the Lord is pouring that through Paul and inspiration, go, oh, those women are keep teaching, right? I don't think so. I mean, you look at Jesus, for example, like he raised and elevated the place of women more than anybody else in his time. I mean, he would get so much pushback. That was one of the places he, he stood firm was this idea of women were following you, Jesus. Why are you letting these women follow you? Right? Why would you let Mary sit at your feet in the posture of a disciple? Why would you, when you resurrect, why would you first reveal yourself to a woman? Why would you reveal yourself to Mary? Right? That, that gives the Bible a lot of, it, it, in, the, in the context of the history of the, of, of the Bible, I mean, they must have read those and go, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Why would, why would Jesus do this? It doesn't, it's not a good witness to the context of, of the historical context of the time. But that's what he did. Right? He, he stood firm and said, hey, like, anybody who wants, come follow me. I will raise you up. I will speak to you. I will pour into you. I will send you out. It doesn't matter of gender or even your, even your talents or your giftings. It's, it's really about what's going on in the heart of a person. The character of a person. Do they have fidelity? Are they loyal? Do they have self-restraint? You know, do they, do they live a life that honors the Lord deeply? Do people around them see this? Do they, do they walk in this place of honor because of the character that they live? You know, I, I just think that we've missed the mark in our culture with this topic, and we've made it about gender exclusivity. And we, you know, and it hurts because I think we've done a lot of damage. <laughs> Sorry, cutting onions, including myself. You know, I, I would just think this way. I would be one who would send Bible studies for girls. Go look at this. You can't do this. You're not allowed to teach. See, the Bible says so. See, I sat in that, that chair. Sorry. Give me one second. Now I think about having a little girl. We have a little girl coming in July. I just want her to be able to hear from the Lord. And if she wants to teach and preach and lead, God, I'm going to send her out. I'm going to equip her. I'm going to build her up to the best of my ability. And I am going to oppose the, trend, the interpretations that say she must be silent. And she can't do the things that God has called her to do. With every fiber of my being, I'm going to oppose it.
Because that is not the heart of God. That is not what he wants. That is not what his word is saying. Yes, you can tell this topic is important to me. But we've got to take God's word and handle it much better as a people. For the sake of our daughters. For the sake of the kingdom of God. It's just so important. You know, Jesus says these words in Matthew 20. 25 through 26 about leadership. And he doesn't say any preclusions to women. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Hasn't that been what church leadership is mostly about? Who exercises authority? Hasn't that been the conversation for hundreds of years? But Jesus says, not so with you. You do not exercise authority like that. Instead, whoever wants to become great, you must be your, they must be a servant. They must be a diakonon. And whoever wants to be first must be your doulos, your slave. He says, you want to be great. You want to lead. You get under everybody else. This is the hardest part of ministry. I was telling Emil last night, I was like, the hardest part of being called to lead is how much you have to be in slavery. It's not the exercising of authority. It's how much you have to die in order to lead. And that is a scary place to be. But a lot of the best leaders in my life have been women who have died to themselves in order to lead. I'll let you think about that. Because where many churches have disqualified women, just for being women, the Lord has really convicted me deeply to be a people and raise up a people who men and women together lock arms. Together lock arms, not in opposition to one another, but that they can be servants together. Walk together Because there's things, ladies, that you can speak into that I will never be able to as a man. I'm thankful for the women leaders in my life who can speak into people's lives different than I can. That they understand things better than I can because of their experiences of being a woman. That is important. We must have women at the table. It's absolutely crucial. Because guess what happens too? When when people are daughters, they don't hear women's voices. They don't know how to speak up themselves. And that is called oppression. And that goes very counter to what God is talking about. So I hope that this this text, this sermon topic has, has broken a bit of a chain in your life. If this is something you've been really struggling with, if this is a text that you've been even used as like a weapon against you and, and you've heard from the Lord and you're like, boy, I, I really feel like I'm supposed to be a pastor or, or lead or in some capability, but then this passage is used against you to annihilate that calling. I hope that sets you free. I hope that this honors the Lord in your life. I really do. 
So you pray with me. And if again, if you have questions after this, please come forward and ask questions. Please, like, let's talk about this. If you if you have questions, like, please, I hope you feel like we're safe that you can come to and talk about these things with. You know, I, so if you do, I'll make myself available after this. And, and sorry for going long, but let's pray. Father God, we, we just want to honor you. We want to handle your word in a way that reflects your heart, reflects your character, reflects what you care about. So Lord, I just pray that you open our minds and hearts to who you really are, what your word really says, or that you will speak into the lives of everyone here, that you will raise up the next groups of of leaders and pastors and servants and ministers and elders and whoever, whatever word you choose to use, God. So Lord, I just pray that you will bless this group. I pray you protect them. I pray that you will just use everyone in this room powerfully. But I pray that this topic isn't one that's more heat than light, but that is used for the freedom that you give us rather than the oppressiveness that others may impose upon us. Lord, let this be a topic that is not scary, but it's conversational. One that we're not afraid of to address, but one that we can faithfully and, and powerfully just enter into your presence and, and converse about what these words and things mean. Help us to wrestle with the text, God. Don't let us justify things by our own feelings and emotions or make assumptions into things that aren't there. We, we want to honor you by honoring your word. We want to never take your words out of context and use them for our own benefit, but to let the word speak for itself, how you intended it to be spoken. So Lord, thank you for all these people. Thank you for everyone who's watching online. Just minister to them. Give them peace. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week where we're going to talk about this topic one more time.